scripture reading this evening is from Philippians 4, verses 11 through 13. I am not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, I know what it is to have plenty, and I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all things through him who gives me strength. This is the word of God. I have a, uh, and, and maybe you can relate to this, um, a very visceral memory of certain things that have happened in my life. Um, one that's like just, you can remember it exactly as it happened. Um, and that's mostly true. When my brothers and I tell the story, it always looks very different, but we were all there. So something like this happened. I remember being in uh, Fiji. It was uh, on a, the end of a mission trip that we took. Most people don't go to Fiji for mission trips, but we did. And at the very end of it, this was in college. So my brother was in college. I was, and then my younger brother was still in high school at the time. And we had a day off before we took our flight home. And so we decided we wanted to go and find the beach with the best waves. So as a resourceful college kid, I did what anyone would do. I went to the lobby where they had a desktop computer with a really slow internet. And I Googled um, where are the best waves in Fiji. And I found this like really strange blog. And it talked about this one place where the waves were better, that surfers would travel around the world to go to this one beach, but there's one problem. It's really hard to find. You need local knowledge to get there. And so I remember we, we were like, all right, we got to find this place. I mean, this is our last day in Fiji, and the rest of the group, including all the adults, decided to go um, to the market and do other things. And we're like, we're going to find a beach, and they, they let us go, um, which in hindsight was kind of crazy. And we get outside the hotel, and there's this guy, and he comes up to us, just, hey, where are you going? Would you like a ride? And we're like, well, yes, but here's the thing. This guy wasn't like an official taxi either. He was just some guy. Um, this was before Uber. And uh, we want to go to this beach. It's called, and we said the name of the beach. And he said, got it. I'll take you there. But it's going to be a two-hour drive. And we're like, okay, that's fine. We'll do it. It's worth it. It's not a huge island. So we're like, I don't know how it's going to take two hours. But we began driving and it ended up going through some really windy roads. I remember feeling like, like motion sickness and we get to this one spot and he says, okay, this is as far as I can take you. You'll have to hike the rest of the way. And he goes, I'll, I'll, I'll give you my machete so you can like chop your way through some spaces. I'm like, this is insane, but awesome. So we get out of the car and we're, we're kind of going through this way. And he told us to keep taking this sort of trail area until we found the man who lived in the shack. And so we go for a solid, solid 20 minutes, kind of hacking our way through. And sure enough, we found this shack. And we get there, and we're like, hello, man, with, is there anybody here? Hello. And out comes this probably 70-year-old man without an arm. First thing you notice, he comes out, doesn't have an arm. We're like, that's interesting. And the man comes out, and he says, hey, who, who, who are you? What's up? And we're like, well, we were told to ask you about where the beach was. And he goes, yes, and, and why don't you guys rent some boogie boards from me? Um, I'll give them to you for cheap. He gave them like $2 each to rent the boogie boards. And, of course, my younger brother's Henri, and he goes, so how did you lose your arm? And I'm like, 
Jake, you don't ask that question. Um, and the man goes, a shark bit it off. And we're like, here? This beach? He goes, yeah, but you'll be fine. Just stay away from the channel. And we're like, oh gosh, okay. So we're at a shark-infested waters where a man has had his arm bitten off by a shark. And we get all the way down to where the waters are. And let me tell you, it lived up to the bill. It was the greatest waves, the bluest water, the whitest sand. It was the most like, it's something you'd see out of a movie. It was so unbelievable. And I would say that for the next four hours, um, it was probably one of the most risky and dangerous. Like we saw, thought we saw sharks on multiple times. Probably just our mind playing tricks on us. But it was one of the greatest memories I'll ever have. And uh, fast forward about 12 hours, and we're on a flight in the middle of the night heading back to the States. And one of the grave errors I made on this excursion was a failure to put on any kind of sunscreen. And I am not a tan guy. I have very fair skin. And so my back is like blistering, right? I've got like, my nose is so red. I'm in so much pain and agony over this like 10-hour flight back home. And I remember reflecting on this at a later point, thinking, in a span of 24 hours, I experienced the greatest joys and elation and happiness maybe I've ever experienced in life, and then the most severe pain and agony on this horrible, horrible flight where I got zero sleep, was just an absolute pain, no medicine or anything like that. And it made me think, isn't that interesting how in life we can have these experiences these experiences of great joy, followed by sometimes experiences of great sadness. And part of what it means to be human is that we experience both. And the Apostle Paul speaks to this, and this is our last sermon in, in our Philippians series, but I think it's, his, it's sort of his, uh, his opus. It's his most important point at the end of the book where he really lands, um, lands the plane. And so just as a quick reminder where we're at, Paul wrote this book to the church in Philippi. Um, this was a church that had a deep affection. He, he loved this church. Uh, he had spent much time with them. If you remember, the words joy and rejoice are used in this book more than any other um, letter that he wrote. And at the end of the letter, he's sort of giving his thanks to the church. And that's where we read our passage. And what's interesting here is that what Paul is sort of trying to, to narrow down is that contentment, this word contentment, is not contingent on circumstance. So the way you find satisfaction or contentment in life is not contingent on your circumstances, but rather it's rooted in your confidence in Christ. We see this again, Paul talks about this in, in his letter to the Corinthians, uh, 2 Corinthians 12, um, he says he's speaking about hardships and difficulties and the fact that he has a thorn in the flesh, that he's asked God to remove this from his flesh. Likely it wasn't a literal thorn. Um, some scholars believe he wrestled with possibly depression or, or some other form of ailment. We don't really know. But he asked the Lord to remove it from his flesh, and the Lord said no. And he says this, For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weakness insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. 
Again, he's speaking to circumstances here. He's saying, even in the hard times, even in the hard circumstances, I've learned to be content. I've learned to be content even in my weaknesses. And we see it again, um, Paul in 1 Timothy 6, he's telling Timothy um, to not be like those false teachers uh, who are greedy for gaining glory. He says, now there's a great gain in godliness with contentment. For we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. So again, as long as we have the bare minimum, as long as we have the necessities, we will be content. Now, before we really understand contentment, I think one of the things that we have to do is sort of understand what's underneath the rock of discontentment. If we're to flip that rock over, what are we going to find underneath it? And just by way of confession, I think I need to confess that there have been seasons of my life where I've experienced great discontentment. I think this is something maybe we all have experienced at some point or another. Whether it was discontentment in my work or friendships or my bank account, whatever it might be, I have truly wrestled with this. In fact, I was looking back, this sermon that I'm preaching tonight, this text was actually a sermon I preached my very first time I preached at Big Church at Eastminster. This was 10 years ago. Uh, I went back and watched it because I was like, maybe I could just preach that same sermon. And what I realized is that I've changed a lot in those 10 years. Not only that, but my preaching style has changed a lot. And some of the things I said that I'm like, no, I disagree with that. Like, I, I think I was misinterpreting some of, these, some of these things. And so it's fun to look back. But one of the things that, that I remember when I watched it was I was expressing as a 23-year-old, or however old I was then, that I had a lot of personal discontentment um, in that season of transition between college and adulthood. So I left my community at Sterling. I moved to Wichita. I didn't know a soul outside of Paul Bamel. He was the one guy I knew who brought me to Eastminster. And I wrestled with a lot of loneliness, a lot of job anxiety. I was not trained to be a youth pastor. I was just faking it the whole time. Like, fake it till you make it was kind of my mentality. Like, I knew, I sensed that maybe I was called to this, but I didn't quite know what I was doing. And so there was a lot of stuff that I really struggled with early on. And it's interesting, but as I reflect on it, I realize that one of the big parts of Paul's secret is that contentment is not some kind of gift that you are given, but rather it is something that Paul he had to learn. I have learned what it means to be content. It's a process that happens over a long period of time. Sometimes it's a slow process, and sometimes it's a painful one. And the truth is, I have quite the life, okay, in comparison to some of the hardships that the Apostle Paul had to experience, um, but I would say that being discontent is a universal problem. I think all people struggle with it, whether you're single married, widowed, rich, poor, black, white, brown, every, every kind of person, old or young, every human heart struggles with this. And I think the truth is, the reason that you and I struggle with discontentment is truly because of our inability to trust God. We struggle because of our inability to trust God. It's not just your relationships or your bank account or living arrangement or, 
or your body image or, or whatever it might be, but I think there's something deeper underneath. I think we fail to trust God. And I think this is why it sort of surfaces in the way that it does, the way discontentment sort of creeps into our life. And I think when we flip over what's underneath the rock, we'll discover that there are a few things that lead to this discontentment. So number one, one of the first observations I would, I would suggest that's underneath the rock of discontentment is ingratitude and arrogance. Our lack of discontentment, or our, our, our discontentment and grumbling and exposes our lack of gratitude towards God. We're so mindful of what we want but don't have that it suffocates our ability to be thankful for what we do have. And if you're a Christian and you're here this night and, and you have a relationship with Christ and, and you've, you've been a church member and you're part of a faith community, we have to be reminded sometimes that as a Christian, we have been given this incredible, unbelievable gift of grace, that God has forgiven our sins, that's past, present, and future, wiped away. He's opened our blind eyes. He's healed our soul. He's done these things through Christ, and yet many of us continue to get frustrated with God because we want more. We're unable to be grateful because we're constantly chasing after the things that we think will satisfy our soul. We want the, the relationship. We want the stuff. We want success. And in that, the thing that we're chasing, we're unable to be grateful for what God has done for us. Another thing I think that's under the rock of discontentment is arrogance. Um, I think we sometimes think we have a better plan for our life. We think we should be in the driver's seat. We wouldn't say it that way, but I think oftentimes this is what our actions reveal in us. We think we can manage our lives better than the way God can. We know that, or we think that maybe we're smarter than God, and, and we get frustrated with them when things don't go the way we expect them to go, and then we begin to wander in our faith. You know, this, this is not a new thing. We go back to the Garden of Eden, Genesis 3. What does the serpent say to Adam and Eve? What, what does he say to Eve? He says, did you, did, he says, did God really say that, right? Putting doubt in her mind. Did he really say don't eat from this tree? Do you know that, that, that the reason God doesn't want this for you is because there's something better than God himself? That you might actually, your eyes will be open, that you'll actually be God? That you'll know all things? You see, this, this temptation was alluring to Eve, in the same way that I think it's alluring to us. We want to be sovereign. We want to manage and control our lives. And I think deep down, some of us think at times that we can do a better job than God. And so underneath our discontentment, underneath the rock of discontentment, we have arrogance and gratitude. And I also think underneath it is lust and greed. The idea that we want more. You know, we, we see this uh, really played out with children uh, my daughter, Emma, right now is in this phase, and it's a sweet phase. I always got to remind myself when things are like, like I'm, I don't want to forget this. This is amazing. But she's learned to really trust me probably more than she should. And so she loves to climb up on our coffee table while I'm laying on the couch, and she'll look at me and go, da-da, jump. And I'm like, okay. So I'll put my hands out, and, and she doesn't really jump, but she puts her arms out like this and just falls straight forward. It's like a reverse trust fall. So she just falls straight to me. I'll catch her. She giggles and laughs, and I'll throw her up in the air, and then I'll set her down, and she'll do it again. She'll do it again. And this morning, I think it was about like number 16, 
of these trust falls. And I was a little distracted. I was on my phone for a second, a little groggy from the night before, and I literally had an epic dad save, one-handed, caught her before she hit the ground. Um, and here's the thing. If I let her, she would do it another hundred times. She never gets tired of it. She, it's the best thing, and she wants to do it over and over again. And now I know that she is an 18-month-year-old and can't express this, but in her childlike mind, she constantly wants more of the thing that makes her feel alive and happy. And I think for us, in many ways, um, this is a, a, a way in which we approach life. When we get the thing that, we, that makes us feel good, we return to it again and again and again. And it's never really quite enough. This is why when um, J.D. Rockefeller was asked, a man who had all the money in the world was asked the question by a reporter, how much money is enough? His answer was just a little bit more. It's why the writer of Ecclesiastes, who experienced just about the most pleasure I think any human could ever experience, here's what he writes. He says, I became greater than, far, than anyone in Jerusalem before me. I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. Imagine living through life and denying yourself anything your eyes desired. He met his every want. He says, I refused my heart no pleasure. Yet when I surveyed all I had done, what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless, a chasing after the wind. You see, what happens is that greed actually fuels our discontentment. The human heart can never be satisfied. It's never enough. And then I think at the bottom, if we look under the rock, the thing that's beneath the sin, the sin that's sort of underneath all of it, is that what is driving and compelling our discontentment is idolatry. Beneath every grumble, every complaint, every time we shake our fist at the heavens, every moment of frustration, the sin beneath the sin is that we want something more than we want God and that we love something more than we love God. And because we do, until he provides for us the thing that we want, we will always be discontent and dissatisfied. Tim Keller put it really well. He wrote this. He said, beneath every sin is a failure to believe that everything I need, I already possess in Christ. I'll read that again. He said, beneath every sin is the failure to believe that everything I need, I already possess in Christ. This is the, um, the parable, and forgive me if I've used this anecdote, but this is the parable of the, the rat and the pleasure button. It's the, these Russian scientists created an experiment where they had this rat go through a maze, and on one side of the maze was food and water and the things it needed to live, and on the other side they had a button with these little electrodes to the rat's brain. So every time the rat would go through the maze and touch the button, it would shoot pleasure to the rat's brain. Well, they ran this experiment for days, and every single time the rat would go into the maze, after the first taste, not taste, but feeling of pleasure from the button, the rat ignored the food and the water, hit the button time and time and time again until ultimately it killed himself. Always returning, not to the thing that would give him life, but the thing that made him happy. It's our failure to trust God 
that we so often run back to the pleasure that actually uh, counterintuitively leaves us more exhausted and more lost and more empty than before we ran to them. This is why G.K. Chesterton wrote that famous line that meaninglessness does not come from being weary of pain. Meaninglessness comes from being weary of pleasure. It's returning to the thing that gives us that, that high over and over and over again that leads to a lack of meaning. Beneath every sin is a failure to believe that everything I need I already possess in Christ. So here's why this matters. Because here's what happens. When our discontentment grows, it really truly erodes our worship. We cannot worship when those two things are at odds because ultimately what we end up worshiping is what can we do for ourselves. We end up worshiping ourselves in the midst of it. You know, you can, um, as we worship, we're responding to what God has already done in Jesus Christ. We are, we are worshiping and praising and giving him uh, worth. But when we're not satisfied with what God has done for us in our life and we're constantly mad or frustrated, you can sing songs, but you really can't worship. There's a difference. Not only does it erode our worship, but I think when we actually get a good gift from the Lord, when the Lord blesses us, um, it only reminds us that this isn't the actual thing that I wanted. Right? We can't see the ways in which God is working. We can't see the ways in which God blesses us because we're so concerned about the thing that we think is going to make us whole and complete. So let me take a moment and pause and ask some questions because we've looked at sort of what's underneath this rock of discontentment and why when we let that go unchecked, it can really... Um, be damaging to our souls. So let me ask just a few questions of us tonight. What is the, the state of your heart? How content are you in your life right now? If not, where are the areas of your life where you find yourself discontent? Could be in relationships, um, your, your bank account, in the way in which you're not quite as far along in life you thought you'd be at this time of your life, or, or maybe it's a, a relationship with a family member, whatever it might be, where, where are the areas in your life that you're discontent? And then the question, what is the thing or person that if you had it, you think would make you content? You see, I think if you can identify that, I think then we can begin to get to the root of sort of where our idolatry comes from. And that's the start. But what's the cure? What's the solution? How do we, how do we sort of battle this in our life where we don't live in this state of constantly being discontent, but we find a, a contentment and to be able to live peacefully in the world? Um, the good news is this. Paul has discovered it. In fact, he says it's, it's the secret that he has learned now, the bad news is that it's not just a product that we can receive or a gift. It, it's bigger than that. Um, what Paul is, is sort of trying to communicate in this, I'm going to read the passage again. This is Philippians 4.11. He's saying, I'm not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content in every circumstance. I know what it is to be in need. Remember, he's running from prison. Okay, That's very applicable right now. And I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, 
whether living in plenty or in want. And I can do all things through him who give me strength. The point I want to point out this evening is that, that contentment for Paul is not a gift. It's not some material need being met, but rather it's something that he learned. He has learned this secret. It's a learning process. It's not like some pill, magical pill you can take and all things are better. Uh, author Donald Miller wrote this uh, on the Apostle Paul. He says, can you imagine the Apostle Paul trying to sell the product of Jesus? Hi, I'm Paul. I want to tell you about the product of Jesus. I used to have a job, money, and friends, and lots of power. Today, I'm secretly shuffled around from town to town where I'm routinely ridiculed, imprisoned, tortured, and occasionally bitten by snakes. You too can have this product of Jesus by calling 1-800-JESUS. May cause temporary blindness. This is not how it works, right? And this is something that Paul has had to learn and something that Paul has had to sort of understand by being brought high and being in high places, but also being brought low in low places. He's been in need. He's had plenty. And he's suggesting here this radical idea that our contentment is not contingent on our circumstances. We may be in the worst of situations and yet still have joy. Closes with verse 13, and I can do all things through him. This is not something we do on our own strength or merit, but only through the grace of God and through the power of the Spirit. And he wraps up his letter, essentially leaving us with this, that Jesus is enough. That Jesus is enough. Tim Keller writes, if grace has really changed our hearts, we don't ultimately care if life goes the way we want it to, as long as we have him. This evening, you may be wrestling with uh, some discontentment, whatever that might look like for you. Um, I know for me, I've had seasons of this, especially uh, as I described earlier, there were seasons of loneliness. I remember feeling that. You know, loneliness is an emotion that you don't just feel or experience when you're a single person, although I did certainly, but also you can be in a marriage, you can be in a relationship, and you can still wrestle with this idea of loneliness. It's a real, in fact, they call my generation uh, and the generation of uh, Gen Z, they call them uh, the, the lonely generations. And there's all kinds of reasons for that. But it's a real experience that even though we're more connected than ever before through technology, we're actually more alone than ever before. And so that's a real way I see so many people struggling. You may be struggling with all kinds of ways where you find yourself discontent, but what I want to share with you is this secret. Paul says there's a secret. And I think part of it is that it is indeed learned. But this is part of what I've, I think I've come to discover over my 10 years before I preached this sermon the last time. I think there's something else to it. You know, when I talk to people... Um, and I, I listen to their experiences. I've noticed a few things. Um, one of them is that it's either the struggle and, and they're sort of wrestling with their discontentment is because they do indeed want something but don't have it. Whether that's wanting to be married, whether that's wanting to, to have a boyfriend or girlfriend, whether that's wanting to have financial stability, whether that's wanting to have community or, or, or relationships or just to, to have a good friend a longing for something that they think in their life will make things whole. 
wanting promotions, wanting people to think highly of them, wanting um, to have power and, and, and so many things that you feel like you don't have, but if I could have it, that would be enough. If I could only have fill in the blank, I would be happy. And I think that's part of it. But there's another part of it that I think I've learned in my experience with people. And that's what happens when you actually get the thing you want. You get the job. You get the marriage. You get the, 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 the person who you feel like was the person who was the one. And you, you end up falling in love and getting married to that person. Or you get the perfect dream house. My wife and I, every year, we, we um, fill out the uh, HGTV dream home. Right? I always think, of, what would happen if we won the dream home? I would be made whole. But no. Right? Like, what if you win the dream home and you get the, 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 you know, the kids that you want and everything? You get everything that you've ever thought you wanted. You get the 20 million Instagram followers. You get the thing. And then one day you look in the mirror after getting the thing and you realize that it's not enough. Time and time again, I have conversations with people, not just non-Christians, but people who, who would call themselves Christians and who have a relationship with God, who get the things that they want. They said, I have it all. I have the job. I have everything. I, don't, I have no reason to not be content, but I'm just not happy. I don't have joy. You know, there's that famous um, speech uh, by Jim Carrey uh, where he, it's really uncharacteristic to, to be serious during one of these like Oscar speeches, but he, he makes some comment about how uh, he's like, I wish everybody in the world could have everything they ever wanted so that they could realize that it's not enough. What a profound observation. When you look in the mirror and you realize it's not enough. So what happens when you believe in Jesus, you try to live by his commands. In fact, you do live by his commands. You go to church, you, you check off the boxes, you're a good person. And at the end of the day, you, you end up facing Jesus face to face. And Jesus looks at you with sadness and says, there's one thing you lack. You can do all the things and it's still not enough. You see, the secret to contentment it's not merely not getting the thing you think will make you whole, but it's getting the thing that you think will make you whole and it not being enough. It's realizing that that will never be enough. The secret is that Jesus doesn't promise that we're going to be made whole on this side of eternity. He promises to be with us, to walk with us, and I think that produces joy and a far better life um, than, than one without Christ. But ultimately, there is still going to be trials. There will still be suffering. There will still be cancer. There will still be death and loss and addiction and struggle. This is the world in which we live in. When we come face to face with Jesus and he looks at you and says, there's one thing you lack. I think one part of um, this secret is that we make peace with the lack. What I mean by that is that we understand that this life is going to be hard. There's going to be very high points. There's going to be very low points. And there's going to be times where we feel like we're doing it all right. And we still feel like something's missing. We have to be reminded, and sometimes in very difficult and humbling ways, that it's not enough. That Jesus 
is the only thing that's enough. Now, you may believe that Jesus is enough, but you may not feel it. And I know I've experienced that. So I don't know if that's a shared experience, but sometimes it doesn't feel like it's enough. Um, you know, it can be difficult to believe something true when we're in the midst of the valley. And perhaps you're struggling with um, anxiety, depression, your body image, anger, singleness, pain from loneliness, doubts. Maybe you've struggled with doubts in your faith. Um, Maybe it's a secret sin or an addiction that's eroded your worship and you just kind of feel stuck. When I share, when I think about what I wanted to preach for this last message, I think the main thing I want you to hear tonight is the truth that in Christ you're not stuck. Whatever discontentment you feel that feels like it's got you stuck, you're not stuck. There's hope. There's nothing more powerful than the cross of Jesus Christ and what he can do by the power of the Spirit in resurrecting your life out from the rubble. So wherever you're at, whatever spaces which you just feel like you can't seem to break free, know that you're not stuck. Part of Paul's secret, as we've mentioned, is that contentment is learned. I want to close by giving you a perfect example of contentment. Jesus was in the garden, Gethsemane, already experienced tremendous suffering and pain, both physical, but it wasn't just a physical pain. It was also an emotional one. It says that as he was there praying that he was sweating blood, that there was literal physiological things happening with his body because he was experiencing such terror about what was about to happen to him. And in the midst of being at the lowest of lows, experiencing the fullness of what it meant to be human, he prays the prayer, Lord, not my will, but your will be done. A prayer prayed to his father. He entrusted himself, the ultimate display of trust. So let us look to Christ as he changes our heart. And when we don't believe it, may we be reminded again and again and again that yes, Jesus is enough. Let's pray. Father, do what only you can do. We thank you for um, this service and all the the ministry that's happened and ways in which you've showed up and um, ministered to our hearts and the, the many um, relationships that have been formed through all of this. And tonight I pray for everyone who's here tonight. Um, anyone who's tuning in on the live stream, I just pray this over them, that they would understand and come to believe that whatever's holding them back, that they're not stuck. I pray that you would turn um, all of our hearts towards you for hope, for purpose. I pray for freedom. I pray that we would no longer accept any chains of secret guilt and shame, but that we would openly confess our sins to you so that we can receive forgiveness. And may we learn to be a people in a place that learns what it means to live is Christ and to die is gain. Because death means being with you and life means Christ. Lord, circumstances are not what we're after and manipulating them is not what we're trying to do. But we want to do, what we want more than anything is to know you in the power of your resurrection. So we pray that you would align our hearts to yours. And that in that, Lord, that we would have a new paradigm for seeing all things. Change us, Jesus, for your beautiful name. 
Amen.